This is Gurus, the story of acting. I'm Jeff Zinn. You okay, honey? I know how you are about death. Happy death day to Mo. Happy death day to Mo. Hey, not so sad. This is a big opportunity for me, baby. Yeah? Yeah. Campaign financing. Mo knew a lot of high net worth individuals. I'm gonna work the room, meet some wallets. The whole church is gonna be stuffed with weeping ATMs. Right. So Marsha called. Marsha? She called you? Yeah, she wanted me to talk to the widow. See what Mo told the biographer? No, this is good. Okay. They're involving you in their disgusting little stratagems. Right. It means they like you. Come on, let's get ready to shed a tear at Mo's funeral, AKA the gold rush. I'm getting a donor boner just thinking about it. It's oh, cute. That's Alan Ruck as Connor Roy, the hapless, deluded eldest son of Logan Roy, in a scene from the hit HBO series Succession, gleefully plotting to raise money for his doomed presidential campaign at the funeral of his father's employee. Alan Ruck's breakout role was as Cameron, Ferris Bueller's hapless friend. There's that word again. In the iconic John Hughes film, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. In the following conversation, you'll hear Ruck talk about a couple of dry years after Ferris Bueller but they disappear in the long list of credits you'll find on his Wikipedia or IMDB pages. You'll also hear him describe his training at the University of Illinois, where he participated in a conservatory program that gave him a solid grounding in voice and movement, and also a variation of Meisner technique that emphasized connecting with the actor right in front of you and drilling down for the truth. Here's my conversation with Alan Ruck. Hello. Hello, sir. Is it Thanks. okay? Is this close enough? Yeah, this is great. Thanks. Okay. I'm recording sure. this, but it's a, it's audio only. You don't have to worry about uh, the visuals too much. But you look great. I feel good. Thanks. Back at you. <laughs> good. <laughs> and um, you're obviously a theater person because you're right on time. <laughs> You've got that punctuality thing going on, right? I try. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I started out in the theater, I mean, just doing plays in high school and then college and then in Chicago, but yeah. So listen, thank you for uh, for taking the time and, and speaking with me. There's always a lot of emphasis on the method, right? Method, 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 especially in relation to your show, Succession. There's been all kinds of talk about Strong's immersion yeah. and method technique. You went to the University of Illinois, which is a conservatory program. Uh, when I was a senior in high school, I was really hot to go to Carnegie Mellon. That's the only place I wanted to go. And my high school drama teacher had started a really uh, pretty amazing program for high school in Parma, Ohio, a suburb of Cleveland. Back in the 60s, we had acting classes. We had play production classes. There was a uh, class you could take when you were a senior called art seminar and it was art history, music history, and theater history. So I was really fortunate in that way. And, um, I wanted to go to Carnegie Mellon terribly. Uh, it, it was my Mecca. And, um, my high school drama teacher said, you need a backup plan. You need, <laughs> you need to think maybe about another school. Cause what if it doesn't happen? I was like, of course it's going to happen. So 
as tall as I am now, I weighed 137 pounds and I had a mouthful of braces. And um, you were only allowed to do one uh, monologue for Carnegie Mellon. I did the nose speech from Cyrano. I mean, it's just ridiculous, you know, but I was 17 and that did not work out. And it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. And my high school teacher got his master's at the University of Illinois. He said, you should have that for your backup plan. So I, I drove out there with my dad. I mean, he actually, I had forgotten about it. And my, my dad was like, oh my God, we got to, we've got to get to Champaign, Illinois. It was, it was like seven o'clock in the evening in Parma, Ohio. So we drove all night and I learned my monologues on the way. <laughs> and um, I think I got in there by the skin of my teeth, I think was mostly the recommendation of my high school teacher that got me in. But anyway, uh, when I showed up there, we had a fantastic facility called the Cranach Center for the Performing Arts. It was designed by the same guy that designed Lincoln Center. And a black box theater, we had a playhouse with uh, continental seating. We had um, a festival theater, which was more like a regular Broadway house with a balcony and everything. And then there was a, a great hall, they call it the Great Hall, which was for symphony orchestras. And there was also uh, an amphitheater on the roof which nobody ever used, but it was amazing facility, fantastic scene shop, costume shop, all this stuff. The best thing that happened to me there was that I was in play after play after play after play. I was constantly busy. The training was a class in voice, a, a class, uh, you know, Lesek, Arthur Lesek, we learned, and then a class in dialects, and then a class in movement that I really didn't understand how it pertained to anything regarding being a human being on a stage. It didn't, uh, but it was, you know, whatever. At the end of my second year, they decided they were going to start a conservatory. So I jumped on that. I talked my parents into letting me stay for an extra year. And I did that. And uh, a wonderful guy named David Knight, who was an American who went over to, to Britain and, and actually had a career over there. And for whatever reasons, he decided to come back to the States and to teach. So he took over this uh, studio program at the U of I Again, it was a lot of emphasis on movement and voice, and there wasn't really anything that addressed inner technique. Now, while I was there, there was a guy named Edward K. Martin who came through. He's now, he's gone now for many years. He, he died in 89. He taught his own version of Meisner technique, and he was also heavily influenced by John Cassavetes insofar that he felt a human being who's fully alive sitting still in a chair can be fascinating. But it was a lot like Meisner technique. I moved to Chicago, and that wasn't long after that. My friend Bob Falls, uh, who has just retired from the Goodman Theater after many, many years, he had a smaller theater before that called the Wisdom Bridge Theater. He struck up a deal with Ed, and they started a training center across the street from the theater. I started to study with Ed. He taught all, all over yeah, at many universities, and he taught in New York and in LA, and then he, he, he did this stint in Chicago. And it was just miser technique. It was like, you got to believe that your whole performance is going to come from the person sitting across from you. Sure. You arrive with an intention, but then you just let them in, mm. and that's going to chart your course, and you don't, have to, you don't have to plan out every moment. In fact, woe to you if you did. In, in Ed K. Martin's class, because he had an unfailing bullshit detector. Right. And he would just rip rip you a new one in front of everybody, like all those acting teachers do. But sure. um, <laughs> he, he, he was brutal with me. He, would, I, he wanted me to stop being a nice guy and to fight back. Hmm. He's, there's two things we do on the stage. We fight or we love. He said, they boil it down to that. You know, you know I, I'd start a scene. He'd say, oh, look, everybody, Huck Finn is here. Hi, Huck. <laughs> He was fucking terrible, but he was great. And if you ever let yourself be 
the whole point of it was to let yourself be a human being, warts and all, and to be fully alive. On the couple of times in class where I really did that and came through, I mean, there's one time I made him cry. So mm -hmm. I was like, ah. <laughs> you know, score. So he was the greatest influence on, on me in terms of what I do. Everybody says method, method, method. And uh, I know it's become part of our culture ever since Marlon Brando went to Hollywood. Right. You know, and that book was written, Method or Madness and all this sort of thing. It's funny. Uh, a lot of the great ones, I mean, a lot of people studied with uh, Strasberg, but most of them, like Stella Adler, she was the favorite. Sure. I think of all people. I mean, Brando and De Niro and all these people just adored her. And I think she was the same kind of person. She just would slap the bullshit right out of your work. Yeah. Get you to be, fully be. So that's what I still try to do to this day. Yeah, I and can then, tell that that is um, very much deep inside you and something you've carried with you since then. I'm, I'm glad you think so because I, I, I hope to do that. I, I mean, I still hope to do that and hopefully I'm still learning how to do stuff, but I've, I've become a lot more relaxed in the process. Well, I'm getting to be an old guy, but I just don't fret that much anymore. I just, you do your preparation, you come in, your whole performance comes from your, your people. I'm happy to leave my, my work at work. Uh -huh. I mean, I do about it, whatever I need to prepare for the next day, or I, I think about the, you know, the greater arc, or, you know, the, all that stuff that we do. I just don't fret about it as much as I used to. I used to think of nearly nothing else if I was involved in a play or a film. It was just all-consuming. And uh, now I'm, I'm happy to think of it as a wonderful job. And when I'm on set, I'm fully engaged. I, I strive to be fully engaged. I tried to leave the pain. If there's any pain, I try to leave it at work. My right. wife is a brilliant actor, Mireille Enos. She did this show called The Killing. Yes. Incredible. And, um, she is incredible. And she's um, she's actually in real life, she's a banana. You know, I mean, she's a very funny person. And now she's doing this new show with Bob Odenkirk called Lucky Hank. Mm -hmm. And she's getting to do stuff in a more comedic vein. But for uh, quite a while, she was cast in these heavy dramas, you know. Mm -hmm. She was asked to go to some very dark places in the killing. You know, spoiler alert, there, uh, there was intense stuff in the third season where she found out that an ex-lover was a serial killer rapist. And she's amazing. And I, I was like, wow, this is going to break her out. And she's, I'm sure she's doing as much as she wants to do, or at least I hope so. Careers, careers are funny. And there, there's, uh, you know, people ask me, like, how do you choose your roles? I say, you know how? When somebody says, do you want to do this part? I say, <laughs> there's only there's a few, only a few people that get to plot out, like, this yeah. is what I'm going to do. So with Mireille, uh, there was, she got a lot of attention for the killing. And she did one big movie with Brad Pitt, World War Z. And then she did a bunch of indie movies that didn't garner a lot of attention. And then she did, um, I called it an eyelash show. She wound up doing a, uh, a Shonda Rhimes show called The Catch. And at the time, we thought it was a good idea because it shot in Los Angeles and it was a mile from our daughter's school and only two miles from our house. It was hard for her because she had been used to working on things that had a certain, I, I don't want to shit talk anybody, but I mean, it was, it was a procedural. It was a predictable show. Yeah. But back to the killing, I mean, just she, she's good enough. She can go to toe to toe with anybody. And um, for sure, in between those uh, scenes, uh, Joel Kinman and her would kind of turn into the Three Stooges. I mean, they had to go to this dark place of love. 
murder and rape and uh, you know all this stuff and in between they're like because <laughs> they had to go to hell they had to go to hell but they knew in terms of self-preservation they had to get out of there hmm. what what explain the eyelash the eyelash thing <laughs> what is that just because it's a glamour show it was all about all the women wore false eyelashes and the show was really about beautiful people in beautiful clothes driving beautiful cars mm -hmm. and being beautiful Okay. You know, and my wife is beautiful, so she she could do that. Right. You know, but yeah. she didn't find it uh, satisfying at all, obviously. Right. But you know, in between takes of those those horrible dark scenes in the killing, she and Joel Kinnaman would just you know start telling jokes, and they would get themselves out of hell. Um, now, there's some people that need to, if they need to do that, they need to stay in hell 24 seven. And um, I love Jeremy Strong; uh -huh. he's brilliant. I do worry for him. And I mean, all, and they, you know, it makes great copy. All this, like, oh, Brian says it's bullshit, and yeah, is, you know, that that the uh, performance should cost you. I mean, all this stuff. It makes great copy. Right. But um, we all love Jeremy, and he has a very particular way of uh, preparing. And you know, look, anybody that I'm working with, as long as your system doesn't interfere with me, I got right. no problem. Actually, ju just jumping to Succession for a minute, I mean, it's the rare show which is very intense and very dramatic, and yet it, it's a comedy. I mean, it's super funny. Absolutely. And your character, if I may, is is very much a comic foil. I mean, you, as you come in a little bit ridiculous, fancies himself to be the president of the United States and all of that stuff, and yet there's that one scene late in, in season three, where you're sitting at the table with, with the rest of the kids, you know, Kendall comes out and says, as the oldest son, and you kind of snap and you break in that moment and come out and say, fuck you, I'm the oldest son. <laughs> I do think this is actually about all of you and your shit more than me. It sounds like I'm, I'm, I'm being defensive. When I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm saying I'm hearing you. Mm -hmm. But it's like, do you have any idea how it feels as the eldest son to be, you know, promised something and then, you know, just have it taken? Yeah. True, man. I'm the eldest son. What was that? I am the eldest son. Well, yeah, obviously, Con, but you know what he means. I am the eldest son, and no one told me about this fucking merger of fucking equals, and what if I want to take over because I am the eldest son? All right. Easy, easy Con. I'm the eldest okay. son. Okay. I'm the eldest son, Whoa. and yeah. I must be considered, and I need to be taken into account. Con, we're, we're talking about what I actually lost. Shut up. What, you're hurt? I didn't see Pop for three years. But your spoon wasn't shiny enough, huh? It is not all about you. I thought you loved me. Asshole. I do love you. I love all three of you pricks, but what do I get from you chumps but chump change? Fucking chump change. Well, fuck you. I'm here for your mom's wedding, and I proposed to my fiance. And no one has said congratulations. No one. But I am the eldest son of our father. I am. I am. 
was that gratifying for you as a, as an actor to have that moment and to be able to go there? Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, I mean, Connor's frustrations uh, have been my frustrations. I mean, it's 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 the same thing. And um, up until that moment, really, up until that moment at the end of the third season, Jesse Armstrong and the writers hadn't given me any game in this verbal world of verbal assault. I mean, it, it, it's ca caustic comments and, and witty retorts. And Connor doesn't have the ability to play with these other people. He just doesn't. So for three seasons, you're an idiot. You're the first pancake. Shut up. You know, and he just pretty much absorbs it like a spun, you know. And so I was very pleased that Jesse finally let me find my voice in that way and um, fight back, you know. So yeah, that was very gratifying. You know, for most of the show, we can think of Succession as being this beautiful body of water, like Caribbean blue, bath water warm, delightful, inviting water, that world. And it's filled with sharks. It's filled with sharks and barracudas, except for Connor, who is a, he's a tuna, <laughs> you know, and the rest of them are snapping, fighting. He's just swimming along, you know, swimming along. And so it was very, very gratifying at the end of season three. And then as you'll see in this season, uh, he's got a few moments where he's just like, you know, I love you, but you're full of shit. <laughs> so... How is it for you, fucking dad? Amazing. Just over too soon. <laughs> I could have kept going. Uh, wrong, we're kidding, man. Kidding. No, I know. It's fine. It's cool. Okay. I'm going home. Well, I'm sure she'll be in touch, Con. You know what? It's fine. Really? Yeah. The good thing about having a family that doesn't love you is you learn to live without it. What? Connor, that's You're not... You're all chasing after Dad, saying, Oh, love me, please love me. I need love, I need attention. Oh, I think that's the opposite of what just happened. You're needy love sponges. And I'm a plant that grows on rocks and lives off insects that die inside of me. Jesus Christ, God. If Willa doesn't come back, that's fine. Because I don't need love. It's like a superpower. And if she comes back and doesn't love me, that's okay too, because I don't need it. Thanks for the party. You're welcome. He seems to be conflict-averse. He's, he's often sort of walking away from the conflict and sort of taking himself out of it, which is, you know, which is fine. But I, I, I don't like to conflate the actor with the character a whole lot. And I, I'm not going to ask you a lot of questions about like, why does your character do this? I mean, that's, that's not up to you. <laughs> right. Kieran Culkin said something. I'm not sure how I feel about it. He said, I don't think they knew who Connor was until you showed up. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, I that. Connor is me and I'm Connor. I don't, oh boy. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, sometimes in casting, they've got it on the page and then someone shows up and they go, oh, there they are. With uh, Nick, Nick Braun and uh, mm. everything he brings to Cousin Greg. 
Sure. Um, they really picked up on uh, the Nicky isms that he th that are just him, and they uh, they wove that all into the yeah the show. I'm just sort of in awe of how much work you've done. I mean, you've just been working, 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 working from the beginning. And what you were saying before about being more relaxed about it, I get that. With so much, so many miles on your odometer, you've soaked up so much knowledge and, and experience doing it. And yet, it, it's it seems to me, if I'm if I'm hearing you correct, that you still go back to that that well of training and technique that allows you to do what you do. I think so. I, I tried to, I mean, it's really, it's a very simple system. It's, I mean, it, 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 it might as well be that book, um, acting is believing who are you, what are you doing here? Who's the person you're with? And then what Ed K. Martin always added to it was, how do you feel about the other actor? Not just you, your character's feelings about this other character, but how do you feel about that other person to really root it down in whatever is organically true. We get some complicated feelings and thoughts. I mean, if, if there's there's someone you're playing uh, with and she's supposed to be your sister, but thinks she's incredibly hot, you know, I mean, that's going to, you know, you just have to let that be. You don't have to act on it, but you just have to allow that to be. And it's, it's going to influence how you do whatever it is you do. So uh, it's very simple. And I do try to go back to that all the time. And, you know, the circumstances of each story uh, change. So it's always new. When you're working opposite someone who is very present and who is as good at being there and being in the moment and responding to you in the way that you like to work, I, I'm sure that that feeds you in a, in a positive way. Have you ever come up against an actor who sort of the lights are off and, and, and they're not with you and present? I mean, what is that like? How does that feel? Well, this goes way back to when I was in college, but I, I was in Scapino. I played Scapino in, in kind of uh, updated Commedia dell'arte thing. You know, big physical comedy. And there was this one one scene where this young guy, one of the young lovers, is mad at me and he's chasing me with a giant salami. And and he's he's swinging it like a sword and trying to bash my head in with this giant salami. And um, we were doing it and there would be, I, I would stop him and say, you know, and I would explain everything, you know, like this. And then he would take a big swing and try to get me and I would duck, you know, whatever. And so I noticed in the, in, the, in rehearsal, I was doing this monologue and I saw him going, one, two, three. Ooh. And I was like, what are, you, what are you doing? What are you doing? He said, listen, my acting teacher taught me how to break things down into a series of counts. And he said, I've decided that this is a four count bit. And I said, why, why, why don't you just listen to what I'm saying? And then Patty hit me. Why, why don't you just do that? He said, no, man. He said, you work your way and I'll work mine. <laughs> you know, and so finally the director came like, stop, wait, listen to him. You know, uh, much to my uh, scene partner's chagrin, I think. But he was forced to work in a different way. Oh, boy. So when you went to Chicago, I noticed in, in Ferris Bueller, and I, w I want to talk about that in a minute, but I noticed that uh, Del Close was, had, a, had a role in Ferris Bueller. 
who is, you know, big uh, Second City guru guy. Did you did you have any any um, interaction with Second City and the whole improv scene? Did you did you connect with that? As soon as I got there, uh, one of my dear friends, his name is Jack Hickey. We went through school together. Um, he immediately signed up for classes at Second City. It just kind of scared the hell out of me because uh, we would do improvs with in at, at K Martin's class. We would do improvs, but there were structured improvs. And it seemed to me that the Second City Viola Spolin approach. I, I know the advantage of it is um, say yes, say yes, yeah, yes, and and you you just you know go with it. So I appreciate that, but I was kind of freaked out by that. And then uh, I, I really, as soon as Ed K. Martin came to town, that was how I wanted to train. One time I did a reading of uh, The Time of Your Life it was going to be done at um, the Goodman. A bunch of you know local actors were doing the read-through, and I was playing the kid that plays the pinball machine. I can't remember his name, but it's the pinball guy. And uh, Del Close, I think, was playing, um, <laughs> what's the character's name, where he's like, you ever fall in love with a midget who weighs 39 pounds? I mean, that guy, I can't remember. He was the one that shot the bad guy. He shoots the bad guy at the end of the play and says, I had to throw my beautiful pearl-handled pistol into the bay. Anyway, he was playing that guy. And I made Del Close laugh just by saying, I'm an Assyrian. <laughs> I guess that's what the, the kid says after he wins the pinball game. And, you know, he starts to talk about himself and he's pretty cocky. I just said, well, I'm a Syrian, you know. And for some reason, Del Close, that was, he thought that was hysterical. So that's my Del Close claim to fame. Okay, good. How did you end up doing Bad Boys? I mean, it was your first film. Am I right about that? Uh, Bad Boys was my first uh, feature film. Yeah, I was I was just you know a Chicago guy, and uh, at that point I was playing the paper boy in a, a production at Wisdom Bridge with Bob Falls of uh, Streetcar. You know, I played the young collector. I had signed with an agent named Harice Davidson in Chicago, and Chicago was a hot location town then, mostly because of uh, the Blues Brothers. They used to shoot tons of commercials in Chicago. A lot of TV commercials. So Belushi and Ackroyd decided they wanted to do the Blues Brothers picture in Illinois and specifically Chicago. And the Hollywood people realized it was like a gem because you have this beautiful photogenic city. They had all the equipment houses, all the, the, the development labs, and all these crew people that were used to shooting commercials. They had everything they needed in town. So they would they would come to town with the stars of the picture and then cast the little parts with locals and there were you know there were gobs of us actors because it was it, I think still maybe the best theater town in America that I know of I I prefer it to New York because most of it is non for profit so people take bigger chances they do it's a, a subscriber based culture mm -hmm. that been developing since the 1950s mm -hmm. starting back with. The compass players and they turned into second city and you know all that stuff so theater is affordable in chicago and people have just made it a part of their lives you know so there's a, a certainly a rich casting pool there and so you were sort of in the right place at the right time for that um, absolutely i've read that you're associated with you know the brat pack guys the you know sean penn and what was the acting vibe like in that group, like working with those guys? Because that 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 seems to me to be a kind of a almost like a West Coast methody thing going on with with them. You know, very intense, 
very focused. Sean, uh, you know, he comes from a show business family. His mom was uh, an actor. His dad was a director. He grew up out, I, th- I think, in Malibu with the Sheen family, you know, with Emilio and, and, and Charlie and everybody. They, they all knew, knew each other. And he studied with a woman in L.A. named Peggy Fury. Mm. And people to this day, you know, speak of her with reverence. I mean, much the way I, I feel about Ed K. Martin. But anyway, um, so Sean studied with this woman, Peggy Fury, and I gave yeah, her, heard about her a lot. Della Adler, you know, the same kind of thing, just paring it down to what's truthful between you and whomever, and the rest of it just doesn't matter. And, um, you know, he was interesting guy because he was only, I think he turned 21 on that picture. He taught me some useful stuff because I wasn't, I wasn't used to being on a, a film set at all, you know. And he said, I guarantee you, the sound man's going to come over to us and he's going to ask you to give him some more volume. He said, don't do it. He said, because we're sitting right right here. I'm talking to you and you're talking to me. It doesn't need to be any louder than this. You know, just stuff like that. Just like practical information that he just, you know, I mean, he grew up with it. So he, he just knew things like that. He was a very impressive young guy. You know, he was buried together. He knew he knew what he was doing and why he was doing it. He's one of those guys that, you know, 18 and ready to go. He didn't he didn't need to go to college. He didn't need to do any of that stuff. I needed to go to college to grow up because I was such a goober. I know, hard to believe, but I was such a goober. Uh, I just needed to have a little more life under my belt because uh, if I'd tried, I, I didn't have anything... Uh, you know, I needed I needed time. I needed training. I, but you also I were able to um, bring that uh, gooberishness into into some of the roles that you were asked to do, and it it worked for you. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, it, I I don't think it's something you can actually shed. <laughs> it's just the universe said goober, so that's 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 my niche. Well, Actually, now I think my my niche for a long time has been you know this, and then um, now it seems to be more like um, older asshole, uh, not Connor so much. Well, he's an asshole. They're all assholes. Yeah, uh, they're all terrible. <laughs> but anyway, so somebody's got to do it. Oh <laughs> uh, boy! Out of all the stuff that you've done, is is there is there one thing, or are there a couple of things that you're most proud of that that you would you know say? You know, when I'm when I'm gone, like look at that. Film wise, I don't know. I mean, um, I'm I'm really happy that people still like Bueller. There was a time in my life where I didn't want to hear anything more about it. It was sure. this period where I, I couldn't seem to scare up any work, and I was like, well, that was my one thing. That's that's you know, I had a couple of years that were very dry, and now I'm I'm happy that I was in something that people still love and enjoy. But I, I don't know. I mean, actually, there was a, an episode of Justified I did with Adam Arkin directed it. I was the guy who kind of carried the story. Mm. You know, I was like, you know, the person of the week. Cool. You know, and the story was uh, kind of centered, centered around his journey. And I was really pleased with the way it turned out. Why'd you become a dentist? You're going to laugh. Really? That's your biggest concern right now. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. The song? TV special. Well, I'm sure I've seen it. I know you've seen it. It was what was on the TV when we were in Brownsville. Say, I knew I'd seen it. You remember a character named Hermie? Help me out. 
Hermes the elf that makes toys, but really wants to be a dentist. Oh, the little gay dude! He's not gay. Raleigh, you trying to tell me you're gay? I'm not gay! He's really not. In any event, Raylan, when I was a kid, Hermie kind of inspired me. I got picture books about dentistry and little kid dentist tools and... Eventually I forgot it, I grew out of it, but... When I walked into that bar in Brownsville, and I saw it on the TV, it was like a message from heaven telling me what I had to do. It's all right, you can laugh now. Well, why would I laugh? But uh, other stuff, I don't know. I don't watch myself well. I don't really <laughs> care to do it. I uh, love the doing of it. I love sure. to be on set in the middle of it. Um, I love how it takes all these people with all these different skill sets to come together to capture this one little moment in light. But I don't know. There's a play I did in Chicago uh, right before I went to New York called Billy Bishop Goes to War. Dang. And it's a sort of a musical. Uh, it was just me and a guy playing the piano. And I had to play all the parts, uh, you know, and I, I had a hell of a good time doing that. Awesome. But uh, there's no, there's no record of that. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it, ain't that the way with, with theater? I'll, 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 I'll look for that. I'll, I'll look for that, that um, episode of Justified. I, I, I'm, I'm curious to see that. Thank you for that. Biloxi Blues, right? Uh, yeah. That, that seems like it was like a, a big turning point for you um i mean and your yeah. friendship with matthew broderick i mean there seems to be a, a big interweaving there in your in your career that was huge for me because i'd, I'd been in chicago doing my thing getting away with it and then uh, i had this opportunity to audition for biloxi blues and at first i didn't want to go because uh the casting uh directors uh fran cumin and meg simon had come through town they were going all over the country they went all over the country looking for young guys to be in this play so i met them in chicago and then uh, uh, a while later my agent called and said my agent said i got i have an, a call back for you in new york for Blexi blues and i said i don't want to go she said what is wrong with you <laughs> i said look you you've arranged three auditions for me in new york and i've flown myself to new york on my own dime i've auditioned for these people and nothing has happened and i said if they want to see me why don't they fly me to new york that's just so full of shit she said i can't believe it i can't believe it so she called up Manny Eisenberg, who was producing the play, and she said, this is how Alan feels. And Manny said, look, if he comes to New York and he doesn't get the part, I'll reimburse his airfare, all right? Yeah. And I was, all right, that's fair. So I went, and it was the only time I was offered part on the spot. Wow. I went and I auditioned, and then um, I had to sing, and I was so nervous. I just said, Neil was there and, and Gene Sachs and Manny and I said may I sit down to sing and they're like sure yeah sure because my knees were literally knocking so I sang I sat down I sang and they said okay I tell you what look at these other scenes and come back after lunch and so I came back after lunch and I had them laughing you know and then Gene Sachs came up to the stage and he said I tell you what just start singing every day get more comfortable with it I think everything's going to be fine and I was like okay okay and I, I, I walked off stage and Meg Simon said, wait for me, wait, wait. We walk up the stage door and she said, did you know he was offering you the part? And I said, I thought he might've been, but I didn't want to make an ass out of myself if that wasn't true. And my joke is to this day, I don't know if they really wanted me or that Manny Eisenberg didn't want to pay me the $300, <laughs> you know? But 
all of a sudden I'd been, you know, I'd been a guy in Chicago doing plays, been a part of that community. And all of a sudden I felt like I was in show business. Sure. And cause it was big. I mean, the, the, the pressure on opening night, uh, we'd gone to LA and we, we played at the Amundsen. Then we went up to San Francisco and we played at the current theater. Then we go back to New York and, um, opening night crowd, no laughs. I mean, like nothing. Wow. And Wayne Rogers was one of the investors and he was backstage during intermission. And he said uh, to Broderick, I don't know, Matthew, if I was you, I might not go back out there. And then he left and Broderick was like, what the fuck does that mean? What does that mean? You know, and it was just, you know, just a, a highbrow kind of snotty opening night crowd. And it was a big hit. And, and, you know, the next night, you know, the laughs were there again. It was all great. But uh, all of a sudden I was like, Ooh, this is big. This is this is much bigger than anything I've been involved with. Right. But it was a, a lovely time in my life, you know. And it was a lovely time to be in New York because I was young, and uh, I think New York is for the very young and the very rich. And the rest of us <laughs> got, no, got no business being there. Yeah, uh, it's, it's too hard for sure. Uh, I was in New York for many years. Um, I w I was uh, well. I was young when I got there. I wasn't quite so young when I left. <laughs> I was in red, yeah. <laughs> and then, and then uh, later, um, you took over for. I, I don't know if it was a direct succession, uh, no pun intended, or no connection intent, from um, for the producers from from Roderick to you. You came in as a replacement. Yeah, yeah. I came in on the road. Actually, the, um, it was Louis Stadlin. It was Nathan and Matthew in New York, and then on the tour. The first national tour, it was Louis Stadlin and a guy named Don was playing uh, Leo, and I can't remember his last name right now. And so he wanted to leave the show. He was like, I'm done. They'd already been on the road for like a year. You know? An audition came up for, for that, for me. And I had I'd, I'd been a singer when I was a kid because my family, my dad sang and my sister sang, and it was just, that was just something you did. But I was, I'm really just an actor who could sing and, um, at that point, I had I had a health problem. Right after 9-11, I got uh, blood poisoning. Mm. And uh, they had to intubate me. And it stretched my vocal cords out. And I've never been the same since. So actually, that whole time being in the producers was kind of like uh, paid physical therapy. I had to move my body. I had to learn these dance steps. I had to sing. I had to remember how to use my diaphragm and all that stuff. I had some days when I was pretty good, and then I had other times when uh, I was not so hot, you know. And, and my my hats off to all those people in musical theater that make it look so easily because it is rigorous. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, I want I wonder if in a previous life Broderick saved me from being killed or something, and then he became responsible responsible <laughs> for me for all eternity or something because I have he's definitely been a, a touchstone for me. And and did you did you have to sing a lot in that? Oh yeah, I uh, and I just I can't get the high notes anymore. There was this one song at the end of the play called "Till Him," and it's supposed to end on this beautiful high note, and I could never ever get it. And I, I'm vain, you know, so I, I trying to get it. And the musical director was like, "Nah, take it down. You don't need to try this the lower note. It's mm -hmm. you can end there, and it's perfectly acceptable, you know." And I could never get it and so it's just um i don't have that anymore <laughs> um I, I had a lot of fun doing it I, I i tried to do it i saw what they were doing on uh the road and 
I saw um, Roger Bart do it and this uh, guy Don do it. And they were doing things that um, I tried to be more like Gene Wilder. Mm -hmm. I really, I really tried to take all my cues from him. But the movie was not a musical. And so there's there's a scene where, where his blanket is taken away from him and he starts shrieking, shrieking at the top of his lungs. And then um, I was told by the musical director, he said, you know, shrieking and singing, they really don't mix because <laughs> uh, you're going to blow out your chords. And he was right. Uh, there, there were some things I was resistant to that felt to me uh, to be a little more stagey. And I, w I was trying to, in my own way, my own vain way be more honest or or truthful or real is such a stupid word uh I, you know i ha i really had to to change the way i approached it because i was really tearing myself up i met louis stadlin on the street right after i'd been cast i met him in new york and um he said we're gonna be working together and i said yeah how's it going he said well i tore my labrum <laughs> like, what he said in my hip i i have a torn labrum and i'm, I'm in physical therapy now i'm not in the show but i'll be back and you know and I said, well, how did that happen? He said, the show. I'm like, what are you, you crazy? Because I had no idea. And I, he, I said, you, you're kidding. And he said, it's, it's going to kill you. It's going to kill you. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? He said, when we go on the road, he said, we do five show weekends. They don't do Wednesday matinees on the road. You do Friday, Saturday, Saturday, Sunday, Sunday. He said, I guarantee you by the middle of the show, the second show on Sunday, he said, you won't be able to keep the spit in your mouth. And he was right because you just get so exhausted and you still like, uh, you know, but they're, <laughs> we're, we're hiding under a desk or something when the Nazi comes in to try to kill us, you know, and goddamn, if he wasn't right, he was like, I was drooling. <laughs> I had, I had no control over my body. I was just a matter of survival. It was just like, get through the next 30 minutes. Just wow. get to the next three. Yeah. Great. I'm glad I did it, but oof rough yeah well you I'm know too, i'm too old for any of that now anyway yeah that's what they you know that's that's what everybody says eight shows a week and 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 especially if you're on the road and you're doing five on the weekends that's that's super that's super tough it's awful it's awful <laughs> it's a dirty job someone has to do it um just yeah. what one last question i think watching ferris bueller and it's it's such a fun movie and and it's obviously such a cultural touchstone you know and your character is so much the kind of emotional center of that movie i mean you're the one who's carrying all the i mean bueller is like he could he could carry you know everything sort of rolls off of him and the, he, he's yeah. able to deflect everything and you're carrying all the anxiety all of the tension in that movie and did it feel that way to you uh, did you appreciate that at the time i knew that it was a really wonderful part and i knew that i was the one my character was the one with the problem hmm. so hmm. whatever the dramatic i mean in, in a really light-hearted comedy whatever the dramatic engine is i knew that was me so yeah i worked very hard on that i my, i did a lot of prep i i really tried to get into you know i was 29 years old playing an 18 year old right but i i gave myself permission to not be hip uh, because you know, when I, when I was 18, I didn't know what all the coolest bands were. I didn't know, you know, I was not, I didn't have any money. I, I was not a cool kid. So I was like, oh yeah, I, yeah, I can do this. So I gave myself permission for him to just be out of it, out of sort of the, the, the popular mainstream, you know, I worked very hard on that. 
I, I don't think I'd change a thing. There, I mean, the first time I ever saw it, it was just a cringe fest for me. I watched an early cut with uh, Jennifer Gray and Mia Sara and uh, Jeffrey Jones. We were at the old uh, Gulf and Western building in, in New York. It was nearly put together. The whole soundtrack wasn't wasn't in, which really helped immeasurably, I think, sure. uh, that movie. But uh, we watched it and we were all kind of horrified. We were like, I mean, we were all very quiet when it ended. And Jeffrey Jones said, well, what do you think? And nobody had anything to say because we were all wrapped up in our own, you know, self what's the word destruction <laughs> uh, michael jeter used to call it the post-mortems yeah he, he would say you know you you do an audition or you do a performance and afterwards you're like why the fuck did i do that that was so stupid and uh so we were all in that space and and but now how I, could I you how could you even know whether it was funny or good or yeah yeah um no i had no idea I had no and idea. comedy is like that you know it's um, I was working on a Christopher Durang play, uh, and we were in rehearsal in tech. And my co-artistic director, actually, who was playing the lead in it, I was directing. He was like, this is not funny. And I'm like, you just have to trust it. It's so hard to know because you can't get any perspective when you're in the middle of it. And right. In a play, you've been rehearsing it for weeks, and you've heard the same lines and jokes over and over yes. again. And you're like, oh, you just, you're over it. Yeah. You know, but then you just have to get out there and do it because it's not for you anymore. Yeah. It's it's for them. Yeah. yeah. Well, you put it together like a, a cuckoo clock, I mean, with all those moving parts and everything. And you really don't know until you put that machine in front of the audience. Then yeah. then then you find out. And sometimes it's terrible. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes, sometimes, it's, sometimes it's sometimes it's not good. <laughs> and sometimes it's not good. And sometimes and sometimes it's not always it doesn't always come together. Anyway, Alan, thank you so much for your time, and and uh, it's it's a pleasure to meet you and speak with you. Thank you. Back at you. Gurus: The Story of Acting was written by me, Jeff Zinn, and is produced by Dwight Street Book Club, Rollin Jones, Adam O'Byrne, Tony Mana, and Nicholas Hassong, with help from Mary Seidel. Music, editing, and mixing are by Jay Hagenbuckle. Very special thanks to Brendan Hughes. For a complete list of sources, including books, articles, and other podcasts, and a treasure trove of images, visit our website, storyofacting.com. Thanks for listening.